Chapter Nine of the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Nine: Smelling Death. Adam Salton, though he talked little, did not let the grass grow under his feet in any matter which he had undertaken or in which he was interested. He had agreed with Sir Nathaniel that they should not do anything with regard to the mystery of Lady Arabella's fear of the mongoose, but he steadily pursued his course in being prepared to act whenever the opportunity might come. He was in his own mind perpetually casting about for information or clues which might lead to possible lines of action. Baffled by the killing of the mongoose, he looked around for another line to follow. He was fascinated by the idea of there being a mysterious link between the woman and the animal. But he was already preparing a second string to his bow. His new idea was to use the faculties of Ulanga, so far as he could, in the service of discovery. His first move was to send Davenport to Liverpool to try to find the steward of the West African, who had told him about Ulanga, and if possible secure any further information and then try to induce, by bribery or other means, the nigger to come to the brow. So soon as he himself could have speech of the voodoo man, he would be able to learn from him something useful. Davenport was successful in his missions, for he had to get another mongoose, and he was able to tell Adam that he had seen the steward, who told him much that he wanted to know, and had also arranged for Ilanga to come to Lesser Hill the following day. At this point Adam saw his way sufficiently clear to admit Davenport to some extent into his confidence. He had come to the conclusion that it would be better, certainly at first, not himself to appear in the matter, with which Davenport was fully competent to deal. It would be time for himself to take a personal part when matters had advanced a little further. If what the nigger said was in any wise true, the man had a rare gift— which might be useful in the quest they were after. He could, as it were, smell death. If any one was dead, if any one had died, or if a place had been used in connection with death, he seemed to know the broad fact by intuition. Adam made up his mind that to test this faculty with regards to several places would be his first task. Naturally, he was anxious, and the time passed slowly. The only comfort was the arrival the next morning of a strong packing-case, locked, from Ross, the key being in the custody of Davenport. In the case were two smaller boxes, both locked. One of them contained a mongoose, to replace that killed by Lady Arabella. The other was the special mongoose, which had already killed the King Cobra in Nepal. When both the animals had been safely put under lock and key, he felt that he might breathe more freely. No one was allowed to know the secret of their existence in the house, except himself and Davenport. He arranged that Davenport should take Ulanga round the neighborhood for a walk, stopping at each of the places where he designated. Having gone all along the brow, he was to return the same way and induce him to touch on the same subjects in talking with Adam, who was to meet them as if by chance at the farthest part, that beyond Mercy Farm. The incidents of the day proved much as Adam expected. At Mercy Farm, at Diana's Grove, at Castra Regis, and a few other spots, the negro stopped, and, opening his wide nostrils as if to sniff boldly, 
said that he smelled death. It was not always in the same form. At Mercy Farm, he said, there were many small deaths. At Diana's Grove, his bearing was different. There was a distinct sense of enjoyment about him, especially when he spoke of many great deaths. Here, too, he sniffed in a strange way, like a bloodhound at check, and looked puzzled. He said no word in either praise or disparagement, but in the center of the grove, where, hidden amongst ancient oak stumps, was a block of granite, slightly hollowed on the top, he bent low and placed his forehead on the ground. This was the only place where he showed distinct reverence. At the castle, though he spoke of much death, he showed no sign of respect. There was evidently something about Diana's grove which both interested and baffled him. Before leaving, he moved all over the place unsatisfied, and in one spot, close to the edge of the brow, where there was a deep hollow, he appeared to be afraid. After returning several times to this place, he suddenly turned and ran in a panic of fear to the higher ground, crossing as he did so the outcropping rock. Then he seemed to breathe more freely, and recovered some of his jaunty impudence. All this seemed to satisfy Adam's expectations. He went back to Lesser Hill with a serene and settled calm about him. Sir Nathaniel followed him into his study. "'By the way, I forgot to ask you details about one thing. When that extraordinary staring episode of Mr. Caswell went on, how did Lilla take it? How did she bear herself?' "'She looked afraid.' and trembled as I have seen a pigeon with a hawk, or a bird with a serpent. Thanks, it is just as I expected. There have been circumstances in the Coswell family which lead one to believe that they have had from the earliest times some extraordinary mesmeric or hypnotic faculty. Indeed, a skilled eye could read so much in their physiognomy. That shot of yours, whether by instinct or intention of the hawk and the pigeon, was peculiarly apposite. I think we may settle on that as a fixed trait to be accepted throughout our investigation. When dusk had fallen, Adam took the new mongoose, not the one from Nepal, and carrying the box slung over his shoulder, strolled towards Diana's grove. Close to the gateway he met Lady Arabella, clad as usual in tightly fitting white, which showed off her slim figure. To his intense astonishment, the mongoose allowed her to pet him, take him up in her arms and fondle him. As she was going in his direction, they walked on together. Round the roadway, between the entrances of Diana's Grove and Lesser Hill, were many trees, with not much foliage except at the top. In the dusk this place was shadowy, and the view was hampered by the clustering trunks. In the uncertain, tremulous light which fell through the treetops, it was hard to distinguish anything clearly, and at last, somehow, he lost sight of her altogether, and turned back on his track to find her. Presently he came across her close to her own gate. She was leaning over the paling of split oak branches, which formed the paling of the avenue. He could not see the mongoose, so he asked her where it had gone. "'He slipped out of my arms while I was petting him,' she answered, and disappeared under the hedges." They found him at a place where the avenue widened so as to let carriages pass each other. The little creature seemed quite changed. He had been ebulliently active. Now he was dull and spiritless, seemed to be dazed. He allowed himself to be lifted by either of the pair, 
but when he was alone with Lady Arabella, he kept looking round in a strange way, as though trying to escape. When they had come out on the roadway, Adam held the mongoose tight to him, and lifting his hat to his companion, moved quickly towards Lesser Hill. He and Lady Arabella lost sight of each other in the thickening gloom. When Adam got home, he put the mongoose in his box and locked the door of the room. The other mongoose, the one from Nepal, was safely locked in his own box, but he lay quiet and did not stir. When he got to his study, Sir Nathaniel came in, shutting the door behind him. I have come, he said, while we have an opportunity of being alone, to tell you something of the Caswell family which I think will interest you. There is, or used to be, a belief in this part of the world that the Caswell family had some strange power of making the wills of other persons subservient to their own. There are many allusions to the subject in memoirs and other unimportant works, but I only know of one where the subject is spoken of definitely. It is Mercia and its Worthies, written by Ezra Toms, more than a hundred years ago. The author goes into the question of the close association of the then Edgar Caswell with Mesmer in Paris. He speaks of Caswell being a pupil and the fellow-worker of Mesmer, and states that though, when the latter left France, he took away with him a vast quantity of philosophical and electric instruments. He was never known to use them again. He once made it known to a friend that he had given them to his old pupil. The term he used was odd, for it was bequeathed, but no such bequest of Mesmer was ever made known. At any rate, the instruments were missing, and never turned up. A servant came into the room to tell Adam that there was some strange noise coming from the locked room into which he had gone when he came in. He hurried off to the place at once, Sir Nathaniel going with him. Having locked the door behind them, Adam opened the packing-case, where the boxes of the two mongooses were locked up. There was no sound from one of them, but from the other a queer, restless struggling. Having opened both boxes, he found that the noise was from the Nepal animal, which, however, became quiet at once. In the other box the new mongoose lay dead, with every appearance of having been strangled. End of chapter 9 This recording is in the public domain.